Before we get to the episode, a quick program note. As you'll hear, this installment was recorded in front of a live audience. We were in Philadelphia at the ISTE Live conference, and we had a great crowd. Honestly, it was a treat to meet folks in person and to have a few cheesesteaks while I was down there. One slight technical note. We had a glitch in the audio recording for this session, so you might notice that this episode is not quite as crisp as usual. But we have done everything we can to get a backup recording that we did um, ready for prime time because we really wanted to bring this conversation to you. All right, let's get to it. Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I'm a reporter and an editor at Ed Surge. We are a national nonprofit newsroom covering the future of learning at all levels, pre-K through higher ed. And we are an independent, editorially independent um, offshoot of ISTE. Um, and we're excited. We are here recording this episode live in Philadelphia at the ISTE Live Conference. Thanks for being here. All right, today we are talking about making children's media, especially around STEM, more inclusive. Um, and we're actually exploring how academic research on this issue is now informing a brand new PBS animated show um, that just came out, really just started a couple months ago. Um, and our guest today is Kareem Edward, who is here with us, assistant professor in learning sciences um, and STEM and edu education down the street at Drexel University. Um, he's at the School of Education there, but he also leads a lab with a, a wonderful name. Um, I'm gonna say it's acronym first, which the folks at the NSF probably like the, all, the, all the words and letters. It's the Informal Learning Linking Engineering Sciences and Technology, or the ILLIST lab. His research interests are intersectionality of race, culture, and STEM engagement for students of color, and his goal is to motivate African-American students, especially black men, to pursue, black boys, to pursue STEM learning through culturally relevant and formal STEM programs. Oh, and by the way, he has directed with his music producer hat in, a, in an earlier and current role, as you'll see. He's produced music videos and commercials um, for 15 years, and including some videos you might have seen on MTV. So thanks for being here. Thank you very much. Okay, so... Um, I want to just say really quickly about our format here. Um, I'll stop looking at my notes in a moment, I promise. Um, I, I, we're going to just have a conversation up here, but we're definitely going to leave time for the audience questions. So please be thinking of, of questions. I want to definitely get ideas, thoughts, um, provocations from folks out there too. Um, so let's jump in though. Um, so, okay. Um, I want to start with the big issue. Instead of jumping into the story that I, I think people will be curious about, um, what is the problem or challenge as you see it or gap that you've seen out there in your research and some of your recent team production work that you're trying to fit, that, that, that you feel like there's something not happening that you're really trying to bring into the world? So the primary work with my production hat is nuance. So we do this broad discussion around equity and inclusion, but we miss the cultural nuance of representation across the spectrum, particularly for young children. Um, and the work that I do, both in an academic space and then also in work, is making sure that the missing voices, particularly of black and brown students, immigrant students, 
uh, LGBTQ students are represented across a wide spectrum, particularly in children's STEM media. So that way does two things. One, provides uh, motivation, inspiration. When you see yourself reflected back at you, there's an opportunity for you to want to continue to push more. And the second thing we run into is the lack of creators, actual creators of the content that also look like the young people that we're looking to reach. So that's pretty much the, the direct conversation within my work that I have I mean, I'm just curious, like, are there, um, even back when you were a kid watching children's shows, do you feel like there was, you know, that, that you think back to that time you were maybe and think of, of the way um, representations were happening in maybe the things that everybody was watching and were watching. So for me as a young black male, there was always the coming of age story and it was always white male focused. So yeah. Luke, Star Wars, very white male focused, all the way down to all the cartoons. And even though we frame it in this conversation of exploration and wanting to have generative experiences, seeing myself is very limited. I'm not saying that we didn't have representation, um, but the representation wasn't direct enough to speak to me, to want to see myself reflected back where I felt confident, uh, I felt appreciated, and I also felt the nuance of who I am seen on screen. And part of that was that a lot of it was through a white gaze. So the creators of the show um, always presented more of a male-focused discussion, but it was a very limited discussion in how we represented the black boys, for instance. So there's a TV show if you're old enough to remember Recess. One of the characters was a black male wearing a basketball jersey and high top. Now still, culturally, it was connected to what felt. Um, back in the late 80s and 90s, but there still was something missing at the fact that this character was very flat, which most of 80s and 90s cartoons were very flat to start with, but it was really flat, particularly for black boys and black girls. So, it, I mean, it sounds like it, it sort of felt like it, it wasn't the same, it wasn't a balance, it wasn't equal in any meaningful way as far as identifications of you. Yes, and on top of that, um, my parents are from Haiti, so being not only Black, but also being Haitian was another part of the immigrant story that I was looking to see reflected back, and we didn't see that. It was always a very particular East Coast story uh, of what a Black boy was, um, and I felt very troubled by the fact that as I got older and watching um, Cuban form media, I guess, we still had that flat representation. So the work that I do, particularly at the Ellis Lab, which did a very good job of uh, saying, um, that we look to challenge those uh, constructs and really try to advance this conversation that there are opportunities not only to see ourselves, but to also be active creators in the process. You've been doing some academic research. You know, if you search Google Scholar, I see you've got papers that are on representation in digital media of, of race and among these issues now. So uh, can you share, I know not to read one of those aloud for the podcast necessarily, but in the academic papers, although they're very real, um, but can you share an insight that you've come across in your academic work that you think is, is relevant to this, this conversation then? about, you know, what, what have you learned from digging into the digital media representations of race? So I'll give you one recently. So I have one that I'm cooking called King T'Challa Was Here. And the primary focus of that piece is looking at black boys and their STEM representation. And I reference a paper where the researcher looked at 1,000 plus shows 
um, across STEM media, so Ada Twist on up. And they found that black board representation um, was under 1%. And then this other's conversation are very ambiguous brown characters. So they wouldn't intentionally have conversations of naming characters from very diverse groups and places. They always gave ambiguous brown colors and they framed it from a conversation called the Browning of America, uh, where it's safer, particularly for white students and white parents to show their, uh, their children characters that are ambiguous and not give them direct conversation as to the cultural nuances of characters. So there's nothing wrong with having interracial representation or diverse representation, but calling it out and being very direct in these conversations does two things. Number one, it obviously provides much more of a large nuanced representation for young people to see, but then second, seeing diverse representation in this STEM media allows young people to say to themselves, hey, I can do that. Or there's an essence of who I am, whether it's an animation or even adult presentation, that there is something that I can look at to aspire to, to be a part of. And how I close it, the reason why I named my paper King T'Challa was here, because seeing King T'Challa, Black Panther, who's an engineer, scientist, forge not only vibranium, bend it and move it at will through his academic and intellectual acumen, while still being a king, being a monarch, and an Avenger was everything that Superman and Batman wasn't. And I felt that seeing and reading those comic book characters, or that particular comic book character, was something that led me not only into entering into engineering, but then also becoming part of the media um, process as well. You know, you have had many different interesting skill sets in your career. I mentioned academic researcher, um, your PhD at Stanford and now you're teaching oh, direction. And I was a kindergarten teacher. That's what I was gonna say. You were a teacher. So you you've taught in schools a lot of your yeah, a lot of your the folks, uh, your peers in the profession are out here and cheering you on. And so you I wonder what the work your work as an elementary school teacher, how does that inform, you know, what you're talking about here? Did you see a more we talked about your own childhood, but like what about more recent? I mean because really, it's about what's at stake. Like, because some people might think, oh, well, it's nice to have, you know, these are entertainment shows, right? It's nice to have cartoons and, and hit blockbuster movies about the Avengers. We all like them. But do you think it actually has a real world consequence? And, and did you see that play out in you as a teacher? So, looking at the literature, right? So, culturally relevant education and then also culturally sustaining um, education and practices, those two things for me as both a kindergarten and high school teacher really shaped me to understand two things. Number one, young people aren't really listening to me. They are absorbing culture outside of the classroom. So Carol Lee is an academic that I really hold dear to in heart, and she frames it through this conversation of cultural modeling, right? So you bring what's outside in the culture, and you bring it into the classroom. And one of the first lines of engagement for young people is the media that they're consuming. So the kindergarten teachers that I would hang out with and work with and build uh, they would always reference their cartoons. They would, that's, that was their kind of engagement point. With and the students, as to, to work in the material. Exactly. Okay. So um, we would do work critiquing some of the cartoons that they were watching and really having discussion of how to impact their own development. The second thing, and just to be very direct, it's not just cartoons, right? This is a multi-billion dollar industry. And it has tracks where you can get government funding, NIH, ready to learn, that kind of stuff. And then you also have multiple streaming platforms that are paying millions for creators to develop. 
So the young people, just like for us, they're starting to understand and see that. And they're now beginning to ask questions as to how can they have representation and access to content that really serves not only for them and their own personal growth and development, but then also where this content sits in the cultural zeitgeist. Right, so so many levels, in other words, matters. Okay, so it turns out recently you have gone from just you know thinking about this, writing about this, researching it, to working on a, a children's cartoon, a cartoon for, for young kids. Work It Out Wombats. It's called Work It Out Wombats. I'm going to put up a, a, on the screen here. Um, so could you just talk a little bit about, let's just, like, how this came to be? And what was it that sparked this move from, from talk, researching it to making So this idea already existed. Two um, wonderful EPs, uh, Marcy and Marissa, are the EPs at GBH um, in Boston. Uh, approached me to have a conversation about diversity and equity. So they had the framework, the roadmap of this show, and they really wanted to figure out um, how could they make this show even more accessible? Because the framing of the show is around uh, CT skills. So it's a CT-based show um, to teach three to five rooms computation thinking. So the first thing I did with my partner, so my partner, Dr. Darlene Lamar, we came together and we watched some of the shows or some of the, um, the samples of the show. Right, because it wasn't, it was like early. Exactly. So it was very early in the process. And what we started to think about, well, what are the cultural touch points, right? So something as simple as the, the intro, we framed the conversation of what are some of the musical framings around now that need to be engaged. So we made sure we put some raps in there. And I remember sitting with the young actors and walking them through how to hit the different points in the rap to give them a really clear, nuanced expression of how to perform this. Second, the other thing about the show was developing characters that were culturally nuanced in overall show. I'm going to say something very clear. It's still my research. Animals are not a proxy for culture and race. Say it again. Animals are not a proxy for culture and race. But still, this is what we were working with. So I made this character, his name is Malik. I'm a child of the 80s and 90s, and Malik Yoba was my guy. And something as simple as naming the character Malik, even though the character's a wombat, I have my homies texting me saying, my son is watching a show, and the name Malik is rolling off his tongue. And we made sure, secondly, where, how we frame the show is that all the animals came from um, different locations and cultures. So we have a moose, Ellie, who's from Jamaica. So right there, just making sure that in the designing of the characters based on their ecosystem and the treatment, that there is as much diverse representation as possible with understanding that animals are not a proxy for race and ethnicity. Just to just to back up one second, the so the wombats are in the treeberhood. Could you just give a quick yes. rundown of if somebody hasn't seen the show? Which so it just started, so people could. So it's a miss. tree, very big tree that has houses in the tree, and part of it is that it centers around the three wombats and uh, the matriarch of their family, Grandma Super. Um, so um, Malik, Sadie, um, Zeke, and Grandma Super all live in the treeberhood. And it follows them using CT skills to solve problems. We have Ellie, who's an um, EMT uh, in the treatment hood. We have Mr. E, uh, who's a lizard, who runs the shop. 
And part of it is centered around how these young wombats are engaging, not only in solving problems in a neighborhood, but then navigating in how all of the wonderful stories and the community that's built. So part of what the wombats does for us, as far as like having this discourse, particularly having like a grandmother be the head of the family. There are many of our um, students or our viewers who live in a family without a mother and father, but grandma raises them. So we have um, Lako and Duffy, who are two kangaroo moms who um, adopted Eliza. And that's also a very important conversation. So the Treeberhood really, what we tried to do in the designing of the Treeberhood um, as a team was reflect what America looks like and then also couching in the fact that we're talking about CT skills and how important that is. You know, I like from, from the couple episodes that I've caught so far, I really, you know, it's not, the, the CT skills part are not necessarily like hitting your head every minute. Um, could, so for, can you give a, for instance, of a plot for folks that how this, how this plays out, like what, how these kind of broader, these STEM themes or STEAM themes are in there, but they're not, it's not like this is in show like every minute. So that was actually very intentional and through a lot of the work that we did with our advisors. So this is a team thing. I'm sitting here, but it's still a team thing, right? And my favorite episode is the cornbread episode. So number one, we started with cultural framing, talking about how do you make cornbread. Everybody makes cornbread differently, and we wanted to engage that in the show. But part of um, a CT framing is process, logic, organization. So we have six different types of cornbread being made on the show, and through a process of, let me do it this way. They wanted to make grandma's super special cornbread, but they were missing ingredients. So they had to taste different types of cornbread to figure out and isolate what was the missing ingredient. And this is the work that you do when you're starting to code and you're going through nested if statements, but how do you present that to a three to five year old, right? So part of it is making sure that we couch all of those seven CT skills within activities and also storylines that later when you go to the website, you play the interactive game, or you engage in any of the curriculum that you find in the classroom, that's where not only the games, but then also the teachers are able to continue to reinforce the learning that was done on the show. Now, um, obviously, I'm sure I know people, it's, it's out there getting, getting watched and in big national audience now, but I hear you have a, a resident critic, your own five-year-old daughter. Yes. Um, that is that you you run the show by. Yes. So that's one of the the great things about having the focus group of one in your house. So we've actually designed one character named after the character on the show, Kaya. So we're extremely proud um, of doing that and having that be a legacy for her. But part of the work is really understanding the language of young children. So as we look at animatics, um, we also have to go through the process of selecting colors and making sure that the palette, the movement, the sounds are all uh, that resonate with young people. Kai is sitting right next to us and beginning the process. And interesting enough, on the on the GBH um, launch, her she redrew the Wombats, and it was one of the first slides there. And she's really embraced not only the design process and starting to work on her own animation, but also really having um, a stake in and really seeing that she could be a part of something and then want other young people to be a part of it. So we held a Wombats party at, in her class and it really just kind of provided that good energy and confirmed for us what we were doing was really special. 
I really should have invited them to. Um, so I, and it's funny, you answered my next question, but I'm curious if there's another one. Like, is there something that you've changed on the show because of her input um, in any way? She has a lot of say in the music, um, which is wonderful because I'm old. And part of being old is that you're completely out of touch with what three, five-year-olds are really paying attention to outside of Puppy Dog Pals and a couple other shows. And when we play some of the music back from her, she really has a, a, a really discerning ear saying, I don't really like that. Let's go with something else. And this is really what she says. Like, well, let's go with something else. So part of that, it really supports because GBH and PBS, they have focus groups, right? So when we send them episodes, they'll do some focus groups in the background and she's hitting it right on time or really on point with what the focus groups are saying. So it's really supercharging our process as we move forward. You know, not so obviously um, you're, you're making the show, you're putting your ideas into practice here. But what about the larger context? Do you feel like things are, are, are changing in representations of, of STEM and STEAM in, in children's media in other ways? Um, are things kind of moving in this direction already? No. Why do you think that is? Because we're running into two parts. Number one is the lack of creators, people of color. So when you look at the top STEM shows, Ada Twist and other shows, and I'm, I don't have anything personal against whoever creates it, but it's not folks of color, even though the shows themselves have young um, characters of color. So that one, um, when you look at some of these shows and you think about it, if you close your eyes, are these characters representative and do they give these cultural nuances that for young people who are watching them, do they see themselves reflected? So that's the one thing. The creative and the writing teams are still not reflective of the audience that they're looking to approach. And then second, really providing fellowship and opportunities for the career pathway for folks that are in the underrepresented communities to be a part of it. Now, one of the things um, this show, um, Work It Out Wombats, that we pride ourselves on is that we had a writing fellowship because myself, my wife, uh, we made it very clear that in order to create these cultural nuanced discussions, we need writers, um, not only writers that um, are underrepresented, but we also need women. We also need folks that um, uh, immigrant backgrounds because we have characters on here that are from various backgrounds. In order to have a real authentic voice for all of these characters to be presented, you need the writers to create that. So for me, in being in the industry, I do see headway moving forward because for me, obviously, as a black male, I'm part of the producing um, process, but it's still very limited. Um, when I go to other producing uh, sessions with other creators of shows, it's me and a couple other folks. And it's great to have the celebration of the work that I'm doing and my wife is doing, but I really would love a critical mass of folks of color being particularly in this space. It seems like a good time to go back to the Illus Lab that, that you run. Is that a, a, a part of, of moving in that direction? Yes, so at the Illus Lab, the primary focus is how do we create culturally sustaining STEM engagement for black children? And we have something called the Sneaker Lab where I got about 600 sneakers in there and we design and create sneakers through the concept of material science, right? And being in the animation business and working in a space where creativity is at its real apex, I decided to open up uh, an animation lab. And right now the Illus has an animation lab in it. 
and I'm bringing black students from West Philadelphia High School to come into the lab and engage. It's right now in its beginning stages doing a little bit of stop motion work, but as you can see, one of the best films right now, Into the Spider-Verse, has a young black male who got hired to do animation, Lego animation, and was put into the film. And I think those are the opportunities that we need to start cultivating and beginning to strategize to get as many young people to be in this space so they can design and create so that way they can get opportunities further down the line. So that's, I'm sorry, so the, just so I understand the story, the, I've seen the movie, the, the Spider-Verse movie. So you're, that was a, there's the, the Lego sequence is something that came yeah. from. So a young black male uh, was doing some, um, kind of like some YouTube um, TikTok stuff. Nice. And the directors of the film, they saw his videos and they asked him to come in and he designed, he created the, the sequence when Spider was talking on his watch in the lab. So for us, we saw that as inspiration. I mean, we've been doing um, stop motion work before, but now I have young people that have seen particularly Miles Morales as being this beacon um, for them to see themselves. I mean, I don't know if you've seen the film, but I cried like five or six times. Like we're talking about balling crying. And the young people in my lab did the same and they wanted an opportunity to be able to create the same way, knowing that I'm in the industry. I said, all right, let's start building. So the lab is in its infancy right now, but hopefully by the fall, we can start getting some real projects out and I can start bringing my contacts in the industry to be part of the process. Um, this is great and I have more questions we can ask here, but I, I want to—I do want to leave it open to questions. Does anybody have any out there in the audience that, um, that you want to pose? I'm going to walk over. So hi, my name is Heather Rubin and I work on Long Island as an administrative coordinator for tech integration and uh, for specifically for culturally and linguistically diverse students. So my question is, how do you feel, I, I really love the show that you've created, but I, I also find that our students in the 6 through 12 grades are, are really left out of the, the conversation. Yep. Um, many of them immigrants at that age arriving and just becoming invisible, um, but they're not seen in any form of media. So how might you address those students? So for me, again, I'm, I said this a little bit earlier, both my parents are from Haiti. If you ever met a Haitian, they love telling you that they're Haitian. So I'm Haitian. So there it is. I just started off very quick. Um, part of the work that we do on this show, granted it's three to five, is that um, my wife created a family, Filipino family. Um, so Junjun um, is a character that not only speaks Tagalog, um, but we make sure we reference Tagalog words on the show. And there's an opportunity moving forward. And just the work that we're doing is that if we intentionally make sure that to be seen is to also be heard, right? So embracing language. And there's always these articles about how second language is a superpower, but it's always the Western ones. It's always French, right, as a superpower. But when you speak Spanish, all of a sudden, that ain't a superpower, even though Spanish starts in Europe. But it's weird. Um, so for me, I always embrace this idea that um, if you see but also hear um, folks of color, immigrants, um, within children's shows and children's media, there's an opportunity to have this authentic representation, particularly of language, to help become very generative and also be a very powerful indicator as to how you can be, how you can engage and also embrace cultural nuances across the board. Any other questions out there? Okay. I'm gonna, I should have just stayed out here. 
Hello, uh, Calvin Crane, uh, Socorro Independent School District. I'm an instructional technology specialist, but I'm also a screenwriter and director. So my question is, how much of yourself is in each project or episode? And I, you just gave us some examples of your daughter's feedback and uh, other examples, but how much of you are in each project? So I could be very transparent to say 150%. Um, and part of it was when joining the group and then also being part of the creative staff, um, I made sure that I wasn't going to be afraid of this opportunity. And I'll be transparent, um, particularly for underrepresented folks, and I kind of chop it up with them when we have this conversation. We're always afraid of being our full authentic self so we don't lose our job, right? This is unfortunately the way the world is, right? But now I'm gonna add an extra layer and then answer your question. So what happened with the murder of George Floyd, everybody wanted DEI representation. And I'll say it again. What happened with the murder of George Floyd, everybody wanted DEI representation and DEI officers and figuring out how to put black and brown people on their shows and their products. So what I said to myself, the brother was murdered and therefore I will shine and I will represent who he is and his blackness and all the work that I do. So I speak up, right? I say who I am and I represent who I am to everybody in the room. And something interesting happened is that part of that discussion became authentic. And when I was being authentic, and it wasn't about trying to, uh, it wasn't trying to overpower, but it was more about just being Korean. And at that point, they started to understand that there are plenty little Koreans that are going to watch these shows. And if we listen, there's an opportunity to continue to reach these little Koreans. So the other thing that I thought about is that I'm trying to shine for brothers like you, is that for you to see me, hopefully that gives some type of, hey, I'm gonna do it too. To name the character Malik was an opportunity to shine too. So all those different stages, that was me being 100. The other thing, it doesn't hurt that I got another job too, right? As a faculty member, right? I write about this. And unfortunately, this is just how the game is, right? It's all about your qualifications. So for me being a, a faculty member who does this work, I had an extra layer of um, being, I guess, an expert in having this discourse. So they were listening to me because everything I said, I made sure it to be backed by evidence. And through backing it by evidence and linking it to culture and how important culture is, it's not only the learning process, but the parasocial engagement, that's when they realize he ain't one to play with. Let's go ahead and listen. Thank you. And yeah, so and, and that came after the murder of George Floyd. You feel like that opened up a more authentic avenue for you in, in this in this way. Yes, and I and I wanted to make sure to to be respectful, but then also couch it into its context. So I also do um, other um, like it consulting services with other major um, groups. And my phone blew within that first month and a half when every corporation had kente cloth and had uh, red, black, and green. And I'm being transparent because this is what we're doing, right? But at the same time, what I'm thinking about now, three years or two and a half years later, as DEI jobs are being cut, where we're now in Florida, so again, I didn't say this, but I was born in Miami-Dade County, so I'm a Florida man, whatever that represents, right? But to see my fellow Floridians 
history teachers under turmoil, right? Being um, being chastised for wanting to have nuanced discussions, it became a real indicator to me that what happened two and a half to three years ago, the tide has changed. So now the work that we create, the work that we engage in, both academic and even this media work that I put together, that I only have a very small opportunity to get as much of this word out to young people and then also other creators in the industry. Okay, I I want to kind of switch a little bit, but I think it's all interrelated. And you you and I were chatting a little bit beforehand, but I, I we're at this conference uh, of ISTE Live this week, and a lot of talk about AI and and a lot of questions about a big change coming technology. And you were mentioning that your work could intersect with this as well. Like, what what do you? I guess could you say a little bit more about? You know some of the other, some of the other aspects of technology that are in rapid change right now, and specifically AI. So I think about two things, right? So I work in a visual medium, and then also one that's very creative, right? In the writing and creating of media, and you see that AI. Uh, there's a real nexus point of understanding. Um, do you have a system right for you? Um, how does a system engage in being creative? But I take it one step further and look at that AI, particularly this version of it, is a language model and we're feeding it very Western language frameworks. So you have young people uh, who speak multiple languages. I speak multiple languages, and that's not being reflected in a language model, right? So that's very limiting. But then you also look at the art model, right? So Dolly, for instance, there are huge exhibitions of artists and computer scientists that are working together to do big pop-ups and art representations, but they're all based, again, on Western art, impressionism, uh, impressionistic art, very Western um, art representation. And again, you're still leaving a majority of the planet, the global south, out of the discussion. So the work that we're looking to do to build at the Illis Lab, right, is to really take a direct conversation as to what are the implications by not diversifying an AI system? Right. I, as a technologist, embrace all technology. Right. And I do, I'm not an alarmist as to what it can and cannot do as far as like being efficient and building towards um, very, let's say this, um, building towards a very open um, set of possibilities. But the problem is we're cutting out a great deal of folk who can contribute not only based on a language model, then also visual representation. So I think there needs to be consistent um, critical discussion around how we're training models. And then the other thing too is the labor. So the computer doesn't train itself. So there are folks, again, in the global south that are being paid very, very low wages to sit and click on images to train the model, to correct um, different um, essays, for example, that help train the language model. And that's also something to consider. If you're worried about Excuse me, if you're worried about how your laptop is being made in a sweatshop, understand that also language models are being um, being generated and creating the same conditions. And for me, if we all ain't free, that's yeah. a problem. Yeah, and it, with Dolly, you, you're referring to these just like the language models and, and words are being trained off mainstream internet, that these language, these art models have also been trained generative models that are actually very main, very, a certain set. Uh, yeah, I think it's really interesting. All right, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it at that. Thank you so much for being here and sharing all this. Thank you very much.
this has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week, we bring you conversations like this one. If you like the show, please follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. And better yet, you can subscribe to our weekly podcast newsletter, which has links to books and research that we mention on the episodes. We want to help you dive deeper into the topics that we cover. You can subscribe to that by clicking on the word newsletter on edsurge.com. This episode was put together by me, Jeff Young, and you can find me on Twitter at jryoung or on the web at jeffyoung.net. Editing help this episode by Emily Tate Sullivan and music by Rowan Jane. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thank you so much for listening.